This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture, and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to New Books in Sociology, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Rituparna Padkiri. I'm going to be in conversation with Sangeet Kumar. He is an associate professor in the Department of Communication and Director of International Studies at Denison University. His research examines the global dimensions of digital and popular culture. He has had numerous articles in journals, including Internet Policy Review, Information, Communication and Society, International Journal of Communication, Popular Communication and Global Media and Communication. Prior to his academic career, he was a journalist for the Indian Express in New Delhi, India. He is the author of The Digital Frontier, Infrastructures of Control on the Global Web, Indiana University Press 2021, that analyzes, among other things, the nature of power on the global web. It is this book that we will be primarily talking about today. Dr. Kumar, welcome to this interview and thank you for taking time out to do this. Thank you very much, Ruparna, for inviting me to do this. And I really appreciate you as well as the New Books Network for giving me this chance to talk about the book. Thank you so much. So let me begin by asking you a very basic question. Uh, I would want to know uh, what was your inspiration behind writing this particular book? Yeah, thank you for that question. So it is... It is. It has been a long journey in terms of the process. By you know, when I first thought of the idea, and its evolution through many different changes that continue to happen in the digital domain, and the you know finally the books publishing. I think the original inspiration was to think of the web and the entire digital ecosystem, as well as the internet, as a global uh, system, instead of something that we only experience locally. Uh, so it is, of course, true that our immediate experience of digital culture is local. It's situated. It is, you know, it meets us where we are. But there is, it is that experience is continuously in interaction 
with the global, the global scale, which brings together things like history, uh, geopolitics, uh, you know, the big arc of the big tech platforms and companies. So that discourse, you know, trying to situate it and put that in interaction with the local experience is was one of my early inspirations, I would think. And this The other inspiration, of course, was also to kind of push back a little bit against the celebratory discourse, the largely celebratory discourse about what the digital world is doing to us, right? So, of course, it cannot be denied that there are many, many advantages of, you know, the internet and the digital world that we inhabit. And much scholarship has now happened about the solidarities that it enables, the global communication that it, it allows, the ways in which it you know, allows people from across time zones, you know, time and space to come together you know, around causes, around issues, around things that people care about. All of that cannot be denied. It has truly been a transformational technology uh, of our time. But what else is a part of that story? And that other part of that story is what I wanted to highlight to show that alongside this uh, huge, you know, these benefits that the digital world has, you know, brought to us, it has also brought along, you know, other aspects such as, you know, a sense of a form of power that, you know, it exercises over us that we all feel but cannot name. Right. We all feel that being a part of the digital world is some there's something different about the world. There's something different about us. Right. Who we are in the digital domain and how we must present ourselves and what happens when we, you know, when our information is out there. So that other side of the story is what I think I also wanted to uh, bring about to to put forward what I would call an you know, both and approach, uh, not an either or approach. It is it is not one thing or the other. The internet, the digital system, platform society is not one thing or the other. It is both, right? And that is the idea that I uh, wanted to foreground in, in the writing of the book. So I would say those are some of the early inspirations for the book. Mm-hmm. All right. So uh, to get to my next question, now how do you think is global culture being transformed by digital culture and also the rise of network norms of sociality? Yeah, that is uh, an idea that I explore quite a bit in the book. Um, And so to think about, you know, the question, how is global culture being transformed? Media studies as a discipline, as well as communication as a discipline, has for long been asking that question. What is the effect of you know, big media industries that have this global scale and a global footprint, um, but often ended up being large Western corporations um, and had a huge role to play in kind of... Uh, transporting, if one may use that word, ideologies, values, norms that, you know, were embedded within within the cultural texts that they were producing and circulating around the world. So this kind of analysis has been done for Hollywood. It has been done for television. So famous, you know, studies such as the ones based on, on the television show Dallas have, have looked at its global effect. Uh, and so that legacy of 
trying to think how global culture was being transformed by media technologies is essentially the question one can ask about the internet as well. Uh, now, the first, you know, kind of answer that one arrives at is that because of its networked form, there isn't that, you know, singular top-down, you know, hegemonic imposition that one would arguably have, you know, claimed about Hollywood, for example, right? Because Hollywood now makes a lot more of its business, does a lot more of its business outside the U.S. than it does, than it does within. Uh, so that networked idea can, can be a little bit of a disarming uh, structure that, you know, asks us to take a step back and say, okay, since everyone has an equal right to create, to disseminate, right, their culture and their, you know, creative output on the web, it, it isn't a form of, um, it doesn't have that same kind of cultural asymmetry that earlier forms of uh, media technologies had. And yet, when we look around us, we do see, you know, an, a certain aspirational notion of the self coming into being, who we are, what should we be like, right? Uh, at least when we are online, these are there are these ideas that, you know, present themselves to us and we are somehow expected to kind of, you know, uh, emulate them. And specifically, there's a chapter in the book on selfhood where I, you know, zero in on, on phenomena such as the selfie culture, um, the culture of live streaming, right? Disseminating events about your life to the world, as well as the influencer culture, which is where individuals, common individuals become brands and uh, you know, begin to have an influence in society, so to speak. So these are new cultural phenomenon, one would argue, right? These are not things that existed in the pre-digital era. The idea of the selfie, the idea of live streaming, the idea of influencers did not exist in the pre-digital era. So I think that this would be something that one could argue is an effect of the digital world. So understanding how that happens is, I think, an important question. And I try to do some of that that work in the chapter on selfhood, where I'm arguing that the affordances, the settings, the standards, and all the requirements that, you know, are necessary for being a part of the digital world, you know, uh, create, uh, have this reverse effect on us, right? It create an idea of, uh, an idea of the self that is close to what an aspirational notion of the self should be, which is that I should be this person that is sharing things about my life, that is unique at the same time, right? That is somewhat of a brand in myself. Um, and, you know, there is this idea of culture as script for life that is often been a theory in many disciplines, including in, in media and cultural studies. You know, if we take that idea to the digital domain, to see how is this huge dissemination of images of you know all kinds of texts what what is the script of life they are giving us right because most when when people went to watch movies or when people read novels in the earlier era right characters in the novels protagonists in in, in film and cinema were kind of you know script for life, right? They, they were they were examples of the ways in which we could live our lives. So now if we take that idea to the digital domain, we now have this proliferation of, you know, images, right? Of all kinds of images. Uh, and I would argue that they similarly function as a script for life, right? And, you know, platforms such as Instagram, you know, there's all kinds of studies of the kinds of pressures it puts on teenagers, but really on everyone in some ways, right? 
which is to see that there are all these other people doing these things and somehow I should be doing the same thing or similar things. Uh, so the sum total of all of this is uh, creating some kind of a cultural transformation. It is a form of, I would argue, cultural power, right? But it requires a slightly different kind of analysis than the kind that used to happen with prior media technologies and industries. Yeah. So since you talked about it, so uh, let me also ask you to elaborate a little bit on this relationship between selfhood and digital infrastructures that you talk about. Yeah, so, you know, who should we be? What should we be like? What is the ideal way of living our life? Is These are existential questions that I guess all cultures have answers to these questions. Um, you know, and I think one would argue all of us, you know, this is what, you know, we spend a lot of our time in life thinking about those things, right? Um, and so here we are in the digital domain, right? And, you know, so that idea of selfhood, who should we be? What should we be like? What is the right way to be? What is the right way to, you know, exist in the digital world through which we, you know, we get peer recognition, we get validation, we get appreciation, you know, that feedback loop of um, being a certain way and then being rewarded for it is, I think, the the, the way in which this cultural power uh, operates. You know, certain actions uh, give us reward and certain actions or certain ways of being um, you know, are penalized, right? And I analyze this by showing that, you know, visibility, um, you know, sharing, uh, self-expression, these are all actions and attributes and ways of being that have rewards in the digital domain, right? The more you share about yourself, the more content you create, uh, the more, you know, likes you get, the more retweets you get, the more comments you get, right? So, and and on the other side, if you are a reticent, non-sharing, passive, you know, user of the web, you know, merely existing on it, not sharing so much, then you are penalized with lack of visibility, lack of, you know, all those other things that, you know, we care about, such as likes and retweets and comments and all of that, right? So this dialectic of penalty and reward, sanctions and seductions is the way in which this normative idea of selfhood comes into being. And the digital platforms that we inhabit are the sites where this duality plays out, where we are taught the rules, so to speak, of, of the game, right? It's almost like, you know, a little child when they're, you know, growing up, they look at people around them and, you know, learn what is the way to be, what is the way to talk, what is the way to behave in certain social settings. We learn that by looking at others in the in the on digital platforms. And just like, you know, in other eras, in other in other you know settings, the system of reward and penalty works. Similarly, the system of reward and penalty works on digital platforms to create a certain idea of, you know, who we should be. Yeah. Right. So you use the term network cultural power in your book. So if you could talk a little bit about what you mean by it. Yeah, so we can just unpack that, you know, probably step by step. So cultural power, the idea that culture, cultural texts, cultural products are vehicles of ideology, values, norms, 
and other forms of political power that, you know, I guess one can tie this to the idea of, you know, soft power uh, by Joseph Nye and a lot of scholarship since then and even prior to that that article, uh, which which basically argued that, you know, culture is or can be a form of global power, a form of geopolitical power, some would argue, right? At least that's what Joseph Nye's argument is. So that, I think, is the first step to start with, which is to say that power, of course, one of the dimensions and manifestations of power in our world today is in the form of culture and cultural texts. Um, now, if you take that, you know, from that top-down um, legacy media structure to a network media structure, uh, you know, it, it, I would argue, amplifies many-fold the effect of that power. Because as opposed to, you know, a few sites, suppose, you know, like we, we watch television on the TV and, you know, you went to a cinema hall to watch, you know, films and, you know, you had books that you read in terms of that as a form of culture. The internet and the network, you know, is this multiplicity of nodes, each of which is a potential, you know, disseminator of culture. And ideally that should be a more democratized form of culture, right? It should allow for more creation, more uh, people finding their voices and, you know, putting their voice outside. And that is somewhat true. It is not to say that that is not true. But what is also happening is that what I described, in, you know, just in, in response to your earlier question, there are certain ways of being, certain ways of, you know, certain cultural forms that are being privileged over others, right? And that is because the the architecture of the web, the settings, the affordances, the protocols, the standards, all of those things that create what we call the digital domain, that architecture also has within it embedded certain ways and values, right, which can be called ideologies. Um, so these platforms are not culturally neutral, and I am by no means the first person making this argument. Several scholars, you know, have made this argument before me, including a very well known in our field called the Platform Society, right? That these platforms are not neutral sites where we go and you know be who we want to be or do what we want to do, right? They are designed to get us to behave in certain ways. They are designed to, you know, create a certain being. Uh, or nudge us toward, right? It is not, once again, right? The form of power here is what choice architecture or nudging, right? Uh, system of rewards and, and penalties. And through those forms, a certain, you know, being, a certain way of life, a certain cultural idea is being privileged over others. So that older form of cultural power, when it meets a networked media technology, the effect is far more... Um, wide ranging, I would say it has a much larger reach just because of its ability to disseminate images, right? Which then becomes script for life. Um, and so, yeah, I think if the idea is that, you know, the world should be, a, you know, plural space for lots of cultural heterogeneities, uh, if that should be the goal, then somehow when we inhabit the digital platform ecosystem, we are, you know, not seeing as much of it. We are seeing certain specific ways of being becoming more and more prominent over others. So my next question is actually maybe a two-part question. 
I wanted to know if we can then talk about a frontier today, considering the expansion and reach of the digital, as well as how can we understand the role or the context of free internet schemes in this regard? Yeah, so the frontier, which incidentally also happens, you know, to be in the title of my book, is I found it to be a very useful metaphor. And it is a metaphor that comes to us from the colonial era, uh, the definition of which being, you know, that it was a line, a moving line that divided, you know, culture from nature, civilization from the wild, right? The frontier was a line beyond which lay unconquered territory and also territory waiting to be conquered, right? So, and it probably found its most clearest manifestation in 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 the in, in America, right? Which in the early days of colonialism, you literally had, you know, this moving line where civil, you know, people were basically just, um, you know, putting up a fence and, you know, owning the land. What that way of looking at the world ignored and erased is that there already were people living here before. And what was so-called considered, you know, unconquered or wild nature was actually very much culture as well from a different vantage point. So if you, when you look at the, you know, global digital divide today, for example, uh, there are some interesting parallels. You know, there is, you know, a significant part of the world today that does not have internet. But similarly, there is a huge race to connect that world to the web. That race is being led by many different organizations and entities. One large component of that you know, race is being led by the big tech companies. Um, and so GAFM is a phrase we use to describe Google, Apple, Facebook, Amazon, and Microsoft. Uh, at least four out of those five are actually in a race to connect the world and through free internet schemes. Um, of course, the most prominent example of this is Facebook's uh, Facebook Basics, um, which is basically right now present in over 65 countries. These are mostly resource poor countries that Facebook is going to and telling the people that we are going to give you a limited version of the internet. Um, Facebook is the arbiter of what goes on that limited version of, of the internet. And basically then that part of the world is getting an unequal internet, different internet than the rest of the world. And the argument often given out by Mark Zuckerberg and several other proponents of these schemes is that some internet is better than no internet. Um, and yeah, so it's surprising that uh, what we now consider just such a part of our life in large parts of the world, the developed world, the Western world, in many other parts of the world, that is not the case. And the lack of resources is being used by these big digital corporations to, you know, find a toehold to enter these markets, to gain uh, users, to gain loyalty of the users, first providing, you know, free internet, and then finally, you know, making them inhabit inhabitants of what is called the walled garden, right? That everything they do should happen on Facebook. They live their lives on Facebook. They don't ever have to leave the platform to do other things, right? So they don't, they don't have the experience of the whole internet. Um, and there are several studies now, some of which I said in the book, where people equate uh, Facebook with the internet. 
and cannot distinguish that there is an internet beyond Facebook. Similarly, one could make the argument about Google. Google also has many of these free internet schemes or, or attempts to digitize the world. Interestingly, in the case of Google, as some expert would say, it does not need to create a world garden because in some sense, the entire internet is its world garden. It, it is the largest advertising company in the world. Any, any firm, small business, big business that wants to exist online and generate revenue has to engage with Google, right? Either through Google or through YouTube or through a combination of those, right? And of course, there's the searches that appear alongside search results in Google, but Google also places ads around other websites, on other websites. So that makes Google a very key stakeholder in expanding the digital connectivity. The question to ask is, what is their interest in connecting the world? They will always respond by saying that, you know, they're almost doing philanthropic work. Um, you know, it's almost like they're doing this as a form of charity. But really, we know better. And that's what critical analysis should do is to ask that question. And we realize, as I do some of that analysis of the discourse around these free internet schemes, you know, the critical question is not being asked because everyone is just too happy to get their, you know, free internet schemes. But I think that this is a compromise, you know, where we're settling for a limited version of the internet, you know, instead of the whole internet. And I think this is something that should be treated as a public service, you know, and taken upon by institutions that are not for profit, whose only goal is to connect for the sake of connecting. Your brain needs support and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Yeah. Right. So, of course, we have seen how Twitter has been now uh, taken over by, you know, Elon Musk, and there's a huge debate on it. So one could really connect to what you were saying in terms of the role of big tech corporations. So I would want to know how you would look at the role of these big tech corporations in enhancing digital reach, as well as to understand if, you know, what you call knowledge infrastructures in the digital domain reproduce as well as amplify some of the pre-existing asymmetries in knowledge in the offline world. Yeah, so thank you. Those are two very interesting questions, and I'll briefly respond to each of them. I think the idea of the big tech corporations and enhancing digital reach um, is very clear. It's very prominent. And I just spoke a little bit about this in response to the earlier question. They are the leading uh, corporations trying to connect the world. And what's interesting here is if you connect it to the idea of the, you know, the frontier, many of the countries where these schemes are being introduced are um, actually post-colonial countries, countries that are you know still recovering right from the ravages of colonialism and all the 
you know, exploitation and extraction of wealth that happened during the colonial era. Some of the, that also explains the current, you know, state of the, these countries, which are resource poor. Uh, and so the fact that these digital corporations are going there and offering them connectivity is something that should be critically examined. Um, so that that is certainly there. And, and to the question of knowledge infrastructures, of course, epistemic power, right? The idea that knowledge is power is something we all hold true and we have understood the role in you know that knowledge production creation dissemination has played historically in creating you know the global order so to speak in, you know including in colonialism and imperialism so one way right and some of this analysis has been done about colonialism in different parts of the world the setting up of universities and teaching the english language these are all ways in which colonial power operated in addition to the military power, right? in addition to the physical conquest of territories, the education, the so-called education of the colonized within the, you know, the values and the norms of the colonial power was a very key enterprise. So knowledge is not value-free. It's not apolitical. It is not neutral. Now, if you bring that idea to the web, the question that we can ask and that we should ask is what is the internet doing to that to that realm of knowledge production. It is, is it restoring the balance? Um, is it allowing other forms of knowledge that have historically been marginalized to come to the fore? Is it allowing, um, you know, the, is, is it allowing us to kind of challenge and push back against the Western domination of knowledge production and certain ideas of what is knowledge and what is not knowledge. And if you look at certain examples and certain sites where knowledge production happens, then that is not that is not seeming to be true. In fact, the opposite seems to be true. And I specifically talk about Wikipedia in my chapter on knowledge, where I show that the global imbalance and knowledge production that existed in the pre-digital era has very much just reproduced itself on Wikipedia, and in fact, some would argue has amplified has been amplified on Wikipedia. The digital divide has to do something with it, uh, of course, because you know a majority of the editors on Wikipedia still are you know exist in, in the Western world. Uh, the linguistic divide has to do with it as well, because there are all these other versions, language versions of Wikipedia, but the English Wikipedia is considered kind of the Wikipedia of record. Lots of language versions are just translations of the English Wikipedia, as well as because of, you know, the proliferation of English as a language globally. So if, you know, Wikipedia still continues to regulate what is knowledge, uh, you know, disallows certain forms of knowledge as opposed to others, privileges certain notions of proof and evidence um, before which, you know, you can make a claim. Those things, you know, for very good reasons, have been apparently thought through by Wikipedia and have been created through a volunteer, peer, collaborative effort. But increasingly, you know, if you actually closely analyze the platform, you know, the encyclopedia, Wikipedia, what you find is that there is this huge imbalance in, you know, knowledge and ideas and, you know, pages about certain parts of the world as opposed to other parts of the world. Right. And one of the reasons for that, for example, is that to create any knowledge on Wikipedia, it should have been published 
in the offline world. It should have had some, you know, publishing outside of Wikipedia, even if it is on a digital domain, it has to have some some other place where it has been published. Now, if you look at the digital ecosystem of publishing, of printing presses, of media ecosystems, some parts of the world have very dense publishing uh, systems and other parts have very scant publishing systems. So it almost, by that very divide, right, is uh, creating this inequality where certain parts of the world will have more representation on Wikipedia than others. And that is one way in which this, you know, amplification of the inequality happens. But there are many other ways. I analyze an entire debate where all kinds of arguments are made from both sides. And we very clearly begin to see that, you know, certain parts of the world, you know, knowledge published in certain parts of the world, certain kinds of arguments have more privilege and value than other kinds of arguments. So it is clearly a work in progress. By no means is Wikipedia not useful. I think it is one of the most remarkable examples of, you know, uh, interest-free, interestless human collaboration globally, right? The entire, you know, knowledge corpus has been created by volunteers and no one was ever paid for any of it. I think that needs to be appreciated and acknowledged. My critique, I guess, here is only to ask, how can we make it better? And that is where I think this idea of knowledge inequality and how it amplifies it is being made. Right. So I actually wanted to ask you about Wikipedia next, but you've already spoken about it. So let me just ask you if, you know, you think that Wikipedia can be made more socially representative and if there is a possibility of doing it, how? Yeah, and that I think is a question that I'm sure the Wikimedia Foundation that owns Wikipedia um is thinking about, as well as the editors on Wikipedia are thinking about, uh, there have been lots of studies now, for example, right, the representation of women as editors and, and, and creators or writers on Wikipedia. And all surveys that have been done have placed the number of women editors at 20%, roughly, maybe a little more right now. Uh, there was an entire debate that the New York Times did on why women contributors are not as as present on Wikipedia and all kinds of very valuable um, suggestions were made and reasons were given, including that the style of argumentation uh, that happens in the talk pages of Wikipedia, the talk pages are what hap- what lies behind the articles, the pages where the discussions happen. And so a lot of the you know women found those kinds of or ways of, argumentation to be extremely uh, masculinist, uh, patriarchal, some would argue, right? And and we're not able to, um, you know, live, uh, kind of be contributors while still, you know, feeling good, right? And that, for example, is something that needs to be thought about. Uh, if you look at the, you know, distribution of uh, pages and like pages about men versus women or biographies of male writers versus female writers and all that. There are all these different ways in which this can be analyzed. So, yeah, uh, how do we redress that? Because that inequality in editors reflects in the content of Wikipedia. You know, lived life as an experience is an important form of knowledge. And when we don't have as many women editors, we are excluding that that way, you know, that that experience from the debates on Wikipedia, which then get reflected 
on the content pages of Wikipedia. And that similar question can also be asked about uh, global distribution of editors, linguistic distribution of editors, right? The North versus South distribution of editors and similar dynamics play out. So if I just wonder what a great achievement which Wikipedia is and how much more amazing it can be made if it could become a truly globally representative encyclopedia because there are these amazing forms of knowledge that exist in other uh, formats, right? Such as orality, such as even visual culture, right? What are the ways in which Wikipedia can incorporate those forms of knowledge um, because those forms of knowledge exist, but are not around for very long often, right? They're dying out. Um, and Wikipedia could become this global storehouse, which it originally intended to be. Um, but somehow the ways in which, you know, it has played out. And, you know, this is a critique, which I hope is a constructive one with the hope that it can be, you know, made better. But I think there's a lot of scope for improving it which becomes which makes it more open to you know this global system of knowledge production as opposed to taking a certain template which is arguably the euro-american template of what is what is knowledge and imposing that on the rest of the world right so uh, you know my next question is a slightly different from what we have been talking about but also perhaps interconnected uh, i want to know if you think that digital media presents a challenge to the concept of national sovereignty and if yes how yes the, the challenge that nation states have faced in the digital era is has now been documented very 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 well uh, i think this challenge is now about two decades old uh, nation states are still coming to terms with what does it mean to have these technological uh, non-state actors which are the digital platforms that push back against sovereign authority sovereign power or so-called the writ of the state which is what sovereignty is within a defined territory there are now many case studies that have and controversies that have shown light on this tussle between nation states and the digital domain. Uh, I guess one of the earliest examples is when Google Earth uh, came into being, when you know you could just go on to that website and zoom in on any part of the world really closely, you know, looking at you know even buildings and you know outlays and you know design of cities and certain structures and all that. So I remember this first came into uh, global prominence, I think around 2005, which is what, 16, 17 years ago. And countries one after another basically had, a, you know, went into a state of panic about what is to be done with this media technologies that allows common users to just get on and zoom in and look at anything, right, that it's almost like having that eye of the satellite. Um, what was most interesting is the is the ways in which these countries felt entirely unprepared in 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 dealing with this challenge. It was a technology that they knew nothing about. They could not block it. They could not, of course, cover up those sites, right? And again, the main areas of concern were so-called military classified sites that they did not want enemy countries, you know, or enemy entities to have access to. 
So they were clueless. And the only people who could redress this problem was Google itself. So there was no way to address this issue outside of Google. They, they did not have the technology. These countries did not, right? So eventually they ended up talking to Google, except that this is, a, once again, a nation state talking to a private corporation. I think this inaugurates an era for us of you know this tussle between digital platforms and nation states, which continues today. We continue to have all these incidents right up to right now, right? There are all these, like recently Nigeria, you know, had to shut Twitter down because of, you know, Twitter doing something or removing, a, you know, a tweet by a state official or a senior leader, I think, um, right? I think other countries such as India, you know, have also had, you know, all these other requests that they keep making of these digital, digital platforms to remove content, YouTube has been banned in many countries around the world. Wikipedia has been censored, I think, in Turkey most recently, but in many other countries of the world. So this tussle between nation states and the digital platforms has continued. Many countries are thinking of solutions. Some countries just cannot find solutions, right? Uh, because they don't have the technology. This is not a matter of huge you know, importance in the order of priorities. So what do such countries do? They, they just have to just sit back and let the you know digital domain kind of change the nature of sovereignty nation states have always wanted to have control over you know flows of culture flows of media flows of texts uh, you know and because that directly connected to you know the ideas of nationhood that they were trying to create and impose or advance that fundamental idea is being challenged right in uh, there are other areas right so for example law enforcement um, the fact that, you know, people can now talk, share, and often do things that would be considered illegal, including, say, speech of certain kinds. Uh, when they exist on servers outside the borders of these countries, the countries have very little power to go after them and regulate that kind of speech. So, yes, uh, digital domain has imposed a, a novel form of uh, restraint on nation states, a certain new kind of challenge. And that tussle is still playing out, I think, in the world. And I think in the book, I I, I elaborate on the idea of differential sovereignty, uh, which I can talk more about. Yeah. Yeah. So I was just going to ask you about that. So what are the consequences of the idea of differential sovereignty that you outline in your chapter on sovereignty? The idea that I would like to put forward is the notion that what often gets talked about is that all countries around the world are equally facing this pushback from the digital domain. And as I just stated in my response to the previous question, that is not the case. Countries with more power, with more power in the offline world, surprisingly, or probably not as surprisingly, have more power in the online world. So it's almost like the, you know, the, the order of power that existed in the pre-digital era has reproduced itself in the in the online domain. So, of course, we know that China has created its own uh, digital ecosystem behind the firewall. Um, other countries would try to do that, but not with as much success. Uh, but there are other ways in, for, in which, for example, a big country like India can push back against big tech platforms, which is to basically say that, you know, there, there's all this money that these platforms make in the country. And, you know, we are going to begin to limit, um, you know, your ability to do that. 
you know, I think European Union has probably been at the forefront of this engagement with digital platforms. So when you look at the power that a European Union or an India or a China has with the power that many smaller countries have around the world, then you begin to see this idea of differential sovereignty. Not every country is equally capable of pushing back against the digital digital platforms. And I think acknowledging that difference will make our analysis of the receding sovereignty more accurate is, is, I think, my contention. And continuing to say that all nation states are equally being challenged, I think, is inaccurate. Right. So thank you so much. I think you have summed up uh, the major arguments and contents of the book in this very brief podcast uh, exceptionally well it was such a pleasure listening to you and i'm sure that our audience is also going to learn a lot and perhaps read the book once they listen to your interview so thank you once again for giving time to nbn and doing this for us thank you i really appreciate your taking out the time to do this despite the time zones and of course thank you also to the new books network for including me on the platform thank you